And so I want to invite you now to Hebrews chapter 5. I'll begin my reading in verse 11 and working our way down through chapter 6 in verse 12. Let us hear the word of God. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is the word of God. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. ABC News reported the following odd story. Meet Stanley Thornton, the 31-year-old adult baby. It's often said that in order to de-stress, you need to keep the inner child alive. But what if there was a person who kept it alive all day, every day. Sounds a little creepy, I know, but that's exactly what 31-year-old Stanley Thornton does. Thornton's typical day goes something like this. Every night he goes to sleep in his giant crib, dressed in a play suit, with colorful mobiles hanging from the ceiling. In the morning, his mommy wakes him up and feeds him with a bottle. Anybody else feel disturbed right now? What's wrong with these pictures? You say, lots of things, please take them down. Where do we start? Fundamentally, here's the problem. Grown-ups aren't supposed to look and act like babies. There is something deeply disturbing, 
seeing a grown man in footy pajamas with a pacifier in his mouth. Believe it or not, this is the kind of imagery the author of Hebrews wants to put in our mind as we consider how some of the recipients of this letter need to be rebuked for their immaturity. And then he, he urges them on the other side of this rebuke to grow up. He says in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, I just read it, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. The writer of Hebrews is concerned in our passage this morning that these believers are not ready to go deeper in their understanding of the implications of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ that we considered in the last section that he's going to go on for quite a while in the next several chapters. He doesn't think they're ready to go into the deep end of what it means to to have Jesus as your great high priest, and it's because of their spiritual immaturity. And so since they've been following Jesus for quite some time, they should be mature enough not only to receive this meaty teaching, but also to be in a position to help teach others understand the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. But instead of serving like grown-ups, they are still living like spiritual infants. Instead of eating solid spiritual food, they're still nursing and drinking milk. And the picture he paints in this passage is of a grown adult still nursing on his mother instead of sitting at a table eating a hearty meal with knife and fork in hand ready to dig in, not only feed themselves, but also feed others. So before continuing in his teaching on the implications of the high priesthood of Christ, he pauses in the middle of this section quite abruptly if, you're, if you've been reading and following along with the flow of thought. And he brings this rebuke, followed by a warning of where this could lead if they do not take the pursuit of spiritual maturity more seriously. So the big idea we want to consider this morning is how a lack of diligence in pursuing spiritual maturity makes one susceptible to falling away from Christianity. A lack of diligence in pursuing spiritual maturity makes one susceptible to falling away from Christianity. And we want to see this unfold in three parts. We want to consider a word of rebuke in chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, 3, a word of warning in chapter 6, 4 through 8, and then finally a word of assurance in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. First, a word of rebuke. Um, chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3 could be summarized in one sentence. You need to grow up. Look at verse 11. About this we have much to say, and this is the implications of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he says it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So back in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the author exclaims, and we looked at this last week, how we should be overwhelmed with assurance and joy that we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and he gives us some practical implications of why that should be so assuring and elating for us as followers of Jesus. But he says there's more. There's more. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he begins to explain how Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priest Aaron. And then he begins to explain how Jesus, as a high priest, is more like the mysterious character named Melchizedek. And before he even gets into explaining what it means for Jesus to be a high priest like Melchizedek, he says, honestly, I'm not even sure if you're ready for this yet. I'm not even sure if you're ready. This is hard to explain because apparently these believers have become disinterested in deeper doctrinal matters. And because of that, because they've become disinterested in deeper doctrinal matters, he brings a strong rebuke. One of the strongest rebukes and warnings in this entire letter. So in verse 11, he says, you're dull of hearing. A better translation would be slow to learn, sluggish, in pursuing a deeper understanding of the gospel. And we use the gospel around here to be shorthand for all that's packed into the significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, with, with accent on the accomplishments of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He says, you're sluggish and wanting to go deeper into that. You're slow, you're dull of hearing, you're, you're not eager to, to see what else is in there. He rebukes them again in chapter tw- in verse 12 where he says, you ought to be teachers. Every single one of you, he says. He says, after many years of being instructed in the faith, they should be helping others understand the faith. In fact, this is what it means to be a disciple. The word disciple means learner. What is a disciple? It's one who learns to follow Jesus and the way Jesus has taught And so you may remember the last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. He calls every disciple, every learner, every follower to also be a disciple maker. He says, go and make disciples of the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Ready? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Jesus commissions every disciple of Jesus to be a disciple maker. In other words, he tells every follower of Jesus that they need to learn and then help others learn. He says, you're not even there yet, and you should be. He rebukes them again in chapter, in verse 12, by saying, you need to relearn the basics. The basic principles of the oracles of God there in verse 12 is mostly, most likely referencing the basic teaching of understanding how Christ fulfills the heart and soul of the old covenant revelation. They need to relearn that. What Jesus taught the two on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel, how beginning at Moses and all the scriptures, he taught them the things concerning himself. And the the apostles did this in the Jerusalem church. And that teaching got passed on. And they had learned those things. But now they, they, they got so out of use in their lives that they need to relearn them. He rebukes them again in verse 13. He says, you're unskilled at applying the word of God to real life. He says the word of righteousness, the word of righteousness here in verse 13 is talking about right teaching that leads to right living. 
You're not thinking about going deep enough into the teaching of the Word of God to the point where you're actually thinking about how it makes a difference in the way that you live your everyday life. Because you're not doing that. And then finally, the rebuke ends in verse 14 by saying you lack discernment on moral and doctrinal matters. Because they aren't giving themselves to the constant practice, those are the words there in verse 13, the constant practice of studying sound doctrine, they don't have the power, that's the word used there, the ability, the dunamis, to discern between good and evil. In other words, they're they're susceptible to not knowing right from wrong, both morally and doctrinally. And so rather than being shaped morally by the teaching of Christ, they're more or less being shaped morally by the teaching or the, or the, or the prophets of their modern-day culture. And because they're not, being, they're not going deep in the Scriptures, they're also susceptible to not having discernment to, to, to see what false teaching they may or may not be hearing from those who actually profess to be Christian apologists or theologians. So in summary... He rebukes them because they are living like infants, content drinking milk when they should be living like spiritual grown-ups, not only eating solid food, not only going deeper into doctrine, but also living lives of service to others, helping them understand what it really looks like to follow Jesus. Just pause here for a moment. I think it's not hard for us to connect the dots as we hear this and go, go into this this morning, is that what is a mark of spiritual maturity? The pursuit of going deeper in doctrine and helping others do the same is a mark, a significant mark of spiritual maturity, a hunger for and a pursuit of sound teaching, a deepening understanding of the scriptures, Not that the scriptures are filled with a bunch of codes that you need a secret decoder ring to figure out. Not that there are all these mysteries to unlock that are only available to some and to a few. But there's just so much in there. So much revealed. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, go and get it. Mine it out. Because as you mine out the depth of doctrine, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go deeper into the glory of Jesus. Doctrine leads to devotion. The deeper we go in knowing what the scriptures reveal about God, the more adequately our hearts are fueled for the worship of God. The more our lives are transformed to reflect the image of God and the better equipped and eager we are to go and tell others the message of God. So a mark of spiritual maturity, according to the writer of Hebrews, is a desire and a pursuit of, of a growing depth and understanding what God has revealed about himself and then wanting to help others do the same. Going deeper with Jesus on the road of discipleship and teaching others to do the same is a mark of spiritual maturity. So I think it's important, even at this point, this is, this is, a, this is a strong rebuke. And so it's God's providence for us because this has been captured for us in Scripture is to ask ourselves the question this morning, do I deserve that rebuke? Have I become a lazy learner? Have I become sluggish in studying the scriptures? Have I become content 
with a surface knowledge of the gospel? If so, this rebuke is for you. Let me just make a little caveat here. If you are a newer follower of Jesus, if you've just started following Jesus, you've recently turned from your sins, put your hope in Christ, you're just grateful to be forgiven, grateful to be saved, grateful to be a part of the family of God, I do not in any way want to take away from that initial joy. You've begun a journey. But let me just encourage you, that journey has just begun. And we're called to go deeper on the road of discovery into the knowledge of God and deeper down the road of discovery into the doctrine that the scripture has has revealed to us about who God is and how God works and what his plans are and how it all finds its culmination in the life and the death and the resurrection, the ascension and the consummation of Jesus Christ. So we're called to not be sluggish, not to be content with a surface knowledge of God and the gospel, but to go deeper. So if you feel that rebuke landing on your soul in a certain kind of way, uh, what's, what, what should be the result? What should be the consequence? Well, the same thing the writer of Hebrews exhorts his original audiences to, to repent. What does repentance look like? Repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance isn't a nasty thing that certain people who aren't doing the Christian thing well enough need to do. Repentance is what we all do every day. Turning from our own way, going God's way. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, said the Christian life can be summarized in one word, repentance. It's a daily surrender to the Lordship of Christ. That's repentance. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what repentance looks like in the text. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. In other words, it's, it, it's, it's time to no longer be satisfied with a, with a foundational understanding of God and the gospel. It's time to build on that. The word leave in the text is not to abandon something, but to build upon something that is previous. The idea here is to build upon the elementary doctrine of Christ. The word elementary is a word here in the text that was used to describe the Greek alphabet, the ABCs. So the author is saying it's time to move beyond the ABCs, although the ABCs of gospel doctrine are important. In verse 2, he gives us examples of the ABCs. Look, in verse 2, he talks about repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. This is elementary teaching related to conversion. This is how someone becomes a follower of Jesus. Initial repentance and faith in Christ. That's a part of the foundation. Verse 2 again, instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. This is elementary teaching related to initiation. Washings is the word baptizo, is where we get the word baptism. Most likely this is talking about Christian baptism. Laying on of hands or the, the prayer of blessing and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That was the common custom for those who were baptized and identified with Christ in the church. He says it's time to move on beyond conversion and initiation and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This is eternal, this is elementary teaching related to the afterlife. So all these things are important, but these are the ABCs. So the author is saying repentance looks like moving beyond the basics and pursuing a deeper knowledge of Christ and the implications of his person and work. In other words, there's more to the Christian life than getting saved, being baptized, and knowing you go to heaven when you die. That's really what he's saying there. 
There's more to the Christian life than faith and repentance, baptism, praying for the Spirit to fill you, and knowing that you will not experience judgment at the end, but you will experience resurrection in the end. There's more to the Christian life than that, although that is amazing. Can we just stop and just say, that's amazing? Isn't it so good to know that because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, because he took our place on the cross, absorbing our judgment in our place, our punishment in our place, that we who have put our hope in Christ will never, ever experience a drop of God's wrath. Isn't it wonderful to know that we are going to be a part of the resurrection of the dead, that our dead bodies will burst from the grave, be reunited with our souls that are in the presence of God, and where God is, we will be forever. That is good news. That is amazing. I mean, just think back to the day, if you can remember, because for some of you it's when you were younger, but think about the day you were baptized, when you identify with Christ publicly with the church. What a day of celebration. Like a God-magnifying pool party, if you believe in immersion like we do, right? You took a dip, and you identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and everyone clapped and cheered. That was awesome, wasn't it? Those are moments to celebrate, but the author of Hebrews is saying that's just the beginning. It's time to go on to maturity. There's so much in Christ. There's so much to know about Christ. He's not just the ABCs of our faith. He is the A to Z. There's more to Christ's glory. There's more to Christ's power. There's more to Christ's reign. There's more to Christ's mission. There's more of Christ to know and love and cherish and worship and share. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, the author of Hebrews says, and he wants us to join him in going deeper and plumbing the depths. Let's get out of the shallows and let's go into the deep end. And his point is, you've got to want this. You've got to pursue this. That's the sentiment of verse 3. And this we will do. This is an exercise of the will. This we will do, but notice the dependence upon God, if God permits it. Let's go on to maturity. Let's repent of our immaturity and let's do this let's do this together and let's do this with God's help verse 3 in summary is kind of like we're going to go into the deep end Lord willing if God permits church this is what we all should want this is where we need to go together to move on to maturity together. Let us move on to maturity. That's why we're here right now. We need each other to respond in repentance to a rebuke like this. We need to covenant together as the church of Jesus Christ to go deeper with Jesus and to go deeper with Jesus with one another, to learn together, to serve together, to make much of Jesus together. Let us move on 
and maturity. But if you don't, be warned. Those who won't grow up fall away. That's the word of warning here. Let me just warn you, this is heavy. And we need to let the heavy texts have their way with us. And in the end, there's such a word of assurance and encouragement, so hold on. I understand for some of us, we're, we're wired a little bit more fragilely emotionally, and that's okay. And in some ways, I, I identify with you in that. I'm like the big the hype guy, right? But I'm not just the hype guy. My highs are high, and my brothers and sisters, my lows are low. Such is the way with those of us who are very emotionally in tune with life. There's a blessing to that. And there's also a difficulty with that. We may hear this warning and think we're the worst Christian ever. Am I really even a Christian? But there's some of us who are on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I don't care about all that church stuff and doctrine stuff. And I know I'm trusting in Jesus for, for heaven, and that's about it. If that's your disposition towards Jesus this morning, then you need to be warned. And here's the warning. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. In other words, it's impossible. This is from a human standpoint. It's impossible, humanly speaking, for those who once identify with Jesus, who then clearly and definitively walk away from Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews in this text, to be restored. They're not going to come back. That's heavy. What's heavy is not just because of what this says. What's heavy is because we know people like this. You do. I do. People who used to identify as Christian, but now they deny it. It's almost like the cool thing to do on social media now, to tell everybody in the world, I used to be a Christian and now I'm not anymore. It keeps happening, not just with leaders, but with your friends, with your family members. People who used to identify as Christian, now they deny him. People who used to go to church, who used to sing the same songs you sang, listen to the same sermons you listened to, go to the same Bible studies and small groups you went to, but now, boom, they're gone. They've walked away. The writer says, if you don't give attention, ready, to the maturing of your soul, that could be You could fall away. So humanly speaking, the author says it's impossible for those who've fallen away to return. Those who have fallen away are people who once identified with Christ, who once identified with the church, who once shared in the many spiritual experiences the faithful followers of Jesus enjoy, but in the end, because they didn't press on in maturity, they did not persevere in the faith, they were never genuine followers of Jesus in the first place. That's not me speaking. That's the word of God speaking. Perseverance is the true proof of one's profession of faith. That doesn't mean there aren't times where people walk away from God and come back. That there aren't periods of backsliding and coming back. 
He's talking about people who definitively say, I'm piecing out from Jesus. Most people who are that definitive about walking away from Jesus, the author says they never come back. Even though they've shared in all the the many spiritual experiences that we share in together as the church. Look this. You can participate in the life of the church and not truly participate in the life of Christ. Those who fall away were once enlightened, the text says. That means they received the light of the teaching of the gospel that was preached. It says that they tasted the heavenly gift in verse 4. Most likely, this is talking about the heavenly experience of fellowship within the church. It says that they shared in the Holy Spirit in verse 4. This is talking about encountering the presence of God in worship. They tasted the goodness of the word of God in verse 5, meaning that they were under the influence of apostolic teaching and enjoyed. There were people who probably said, that was a good sermon. And again in verse 5, they they tasted the powers of the age to come, likely referring to the fact that in the life of the church there in the first century, there there were a whole lot more miracles going on. They saw people healed. They saw those who were under demonic influence delivered. They saw radical conversions of people who, who, who once were living for the kingdom of, of, of the evil one, now professing faith in Jesus Christ. These are all experiences that come from identifying with the visible church. And the point he's making is that you can participate in the spiritual and relational experiences of the church and not truly be a Christian. So the genuineness of your profession of faith is not in your identification with the visible church. It's in your, it's, it's in your perseverance of faith. That's evidenced by growing in spiritual maturity. David Peterson, in his commentary on the text, said, Nothing is impossible for God. But he, the writer of Hebrews, offers no hope of reclaiming those who take a continuous and hard-hearted stand against Christ. When someone has professed faith in Christ, has participated in the spiritual experiences and benefits of the church, and walks away from Jesus, the author says, look at verse 6, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. In other words, their rejection of Jesus, their, their, public, their public rejection of Jesus, and moving away from the church, and moving away from Christ, it's like they're killing Jesus all over again. Because what was the murdering of Jesus? It was the ultimate expression of rejection. They rejected Jesus just like those who nailed him to the cross. Now, I, I told you this is heavy. And Jesus said this would happen. And, he, and, and the author of Hebrews refers to a teaching of Jesus here in verses 7 and 8. You remember the parable of the sower? He says there's four kinds of soil, and the word of God is sown in the hearts of these four different kinds of soils, and it yields four different results. Well, he he summarizes the the, the parable of the soils and and talks about two soils, good soil, bad soil. So this is the way it happens, where you're in the same field, some seed falls in a part of the field, the rain comes, and good things grow. Some seed falls in another part of the field, rain comes, and you get thorns and thistles. And the idea is in in the same part of the vineyard, the same part of the church, the gospel seed is being planted into the hearts of people, men and women, and some of it is going to yield good fruit. Some of it is going to yield thorns and thistles. 
Not everyone who professes faith in Jesus is ultimately a genuine follower of Jesus because they don't persevere. So what's the point of him saying all this? Is he trying to scare these people? Is he trying to belittle these people? Is he trying to paralyze them emotionally? No, he is calling them to repentance to not be lazy in pursuing Christ. Being lazy in your pursuit of spiritual maturity is a big deal. I mean, think about it. Binging on Netflix all weekend and making no time for healthy spiritual habits is a bad recipe for your spiritual maturity. Skipping church just to catch up on sleep is a big deal, although sleep is sometimes something you really, really need. Not being deeply engaged in discipleship relationships with a handful of other followers of Jesus where you read together and pray together and care for one another and the application of Scripture, that's dangerous to not be a part of that. Scoffing at theological education as something only for those in full-time ministry is unwise. Not getting help and accountability with stubborn, sinful habits in your life is foolish. Why? Because of what's being said in this text. A lack of diligence in pursuing spiritual maturity makes one susceptible to falling away from Christianity. David Peterson again on this passage. In context, this passage stands as a warning about where sluggishness could lead. This is where it could go. This is where a lack of diligence in pursuing spiritual maturity could lead to. And why am I, why am I accenting the word could? Because that's not the way it has to be. Notice finally a word of assurance. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, verse 9, though we're giving this strong rebuke, though we're giving this, this, this strong warning, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, although these original recipients are receiving this rebuke, and although they're receiving this warning, there is an assurance in the heart of the author that these recipients are going to humbly respond to this rebuke. Why? We feel sure of better things. We don't think this is your story. We don't think this is where it's going to go for you. We don't think falling away, although you need to be aware that it's possible, we don't think it's, your, it's a chapter in your story. Why? This assurance that he has is not based on empty sentimentality. This is not an obligatory pat on the back, oh, you'll be okay after this really strong rebuke. The reason why he has this assurance that this isn't the way it's going to be for these believers is based on the evidence that he knows. And more importantly, that God knows that even though some of them have gotten into a rut, that they have a track record of bearing fruit that testifies to the legitimacy of Christ being at work in their lives. So here's what he says in verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You're struggling wanting to go deeper into doctrine but one thing you're not struggling with, and that is loving in Jesus' name. 
God sees your love. God sees your work. God sees the way you're serving others. God sees the way you're serving the church. He sees the way you're living to make much of the name, and that is the name of Christ, the name that's above every name that's exalted in chapter 1. He sees that these believers are genuinely doing things to serve the saints in the church, and this matters. This is evidence Christian maturity is not just about going deeper into the doctrine of Christ. Christian maturity is also about going deeper into the imitation of Christ. Both matter. But here's what often happens in the life of a believer, in the life of the church. We often accent one to the neglect of the other. You have churches that want to go deep in doctrine, but they're not doing anything to love in Jesus' name. And then you have churches that are doing everything to love in Jesus' name, and they know nothing, they don't know much more than the ABCs of the gospel. So which one should we be? It's not an either or, it's a both and. The church must be deep in doctrine and wide in love. In fact, both of these issues relate to the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. How are you going to love God with everything you got? You're going to know him for everything he's revealed himself to be. How do you do that? You don't don't have to go on this spiritual journey to figure out what God is like. He's revealed himself in the scriptures. So the way we go deeper into the knowledge of God is to go deeper in the word of God. That's how we love God more. So Christian maturity involves these two components. One of them, they're doing so well, and he commends them. You're loving the church. You're loving one another. You're doing good deeds for the name of Jesus. But there's more to it than that. And I'm assured, he says, that you're going to respond well to this rebuke, that you're not going into the deep end of doctrine because I see you going into the deep end of love. He's sure they will respond in humility and repent of their lack of diligence and where they are weak because there's there's clear evidence that there are areas where they're strong. And so he exhorts them, give attention to where you are weak. And really, that's the effect this text should have on our hearts. God wants us to grow and move on to maturity. What does that look like? It looks like giving attention to where we are weak. Where are you weak? Where am I weak? Are you big on love and sluggish on studying the scriptures? Are you big on studying the scriptures and weak in love? These are two big categories, but usually where we are weak fits into one of those two categories what we believe, and how we behave. They're related, and they'll ultimately catch up with one another. But where are you weak this morning? Where do you feel sluggish in your Christian life? The call of the text is, well, let's receive the rebuke. Let's repent. Let's be warned of where this could go if we don't give attention to it. But let's be assured if God has begun a good work of grace in us, he will continue to do it. And as there are evidences of God's grace and gospel fruit in your lives, you can be assured of this, that where you are feeling weak this morning, there is grace for that weakness.
or you feel immature this morning as a follower of Jesus, know that there's grace, grace that's already functioning to make you strong in other ways, to help you have grown in the ways that you've already grown, to help you grow in the areas where the Holy Spirit is making you aware that there is weakness. So consider these two broad categories for yourself this morning. Are you strong in your pursuit of showing Christian love, but weak in your pursuit of Christian doctrine? Then you need to give attention to study. Are you strong in your pursuit of Christian theology, but weak in your pursuit of showing Christian love? Then you need to give attention to service. And this we will do, if God permits. This we will do, Lord willing. I love how this text, this heavy text, ends with encouragement, assurance, and call to action. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, I'm not telling you these things to condemn you. I'm not telling you these things to crush you. I'm telling you these things because I want you to have assurance. I want you to have hope. And the way you have hope and growth in your assurance is by giving attention to these matters. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So here's the call of action. Stop being sluggish and imitate those who have shown diligence in the areas we're talking about. So I think this is a reference to the cloud of witnesses that we're going to discover in chapter 11 and chapter 12 those who have shown diligence. And we'll get to that. But here's where the, the text closes. Look at the people around you. Look at the people who love God and love others. Look at the people who are giving attention to spiritual maturity and they're growing. They've not arrived. No one arrives. But they're growing. What can you learn from them? And this is a grace from God that we help one another press on in maturity. So let's receive this rebuke. Let's receive this warning. And let's receive this assurance that if God has begun a good work in us, he will surely continue to complete it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you for your word. God Almighty, we thank you for not only saying things that comfort us, but things that should concern us because you are real and your kingdom and its purposes are significant and heavy. We want to feel the weight of these matters. We want to feel the weight of eternity. We want to feel the weight of what it means to persevere in our faith and follow Jesus to the end. And so we thank you that not every passage of the Bible reads like this, but we're thankful that this one does. And that you have discerned that we need this. That we need to take inventory on our pursuit of Christian maturity. And that you would want us to be those who go deeper and press in more fully into the glory and power of your son Jesus. And so help us to do that, Lord. Would you help us get out of a rut if we're in a rut? Would you help us to wake up from our sluggishness and to, by your grace and with one another, press on? God, we need your help for this. And for those who are especially feeling the weight of this text, rebuke, and warning, 
I pray, God, that you would take that conviction and, and cause it to move them to repentance, not desperation, not despair, but to know that you forgive and that you're eager to forgive us and to lead us on. And so, God, would you have your way with us as we reflect upon your word and move on to maturity together in the glory of your name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.